Hi, this is Dr. Mike Carberry from Advanced Medical Integration. I have Dr. Eric Huntington, my CEO and partner from Advanced Medical Integration. We're doing a special video because we've been asked by a lot of you about the um, compliance and legitimacy of Q codes for regenerative medicine. And we thought, boy, that could be a great thing if insurance started covering regenerative medicine. So we did a bunch of research. And today is report card day. That's right. So we came up with a lot of information. We're going to try to share it with you in the next 15 minutes um, so that it's easier to understand. But this is what we came up with. Yep. And I want to, I'd like to preface with, uh, obviously, Mike and I are not attorneys, so it's not legal advice. And we're not certified biller and coders. Uh, so this is an educational uh, uh, forum, if you will, uh, where Mike and I just want to share with you the, the research that we've done uh, so that you can, you can start to uh, ask the right questions and you know, draw the conclusions that uh, seem right to you. And this will be based on our opinion, based on facts that we got from attorneys and a lot of other people. We talked to multiple attorneys from different companies. Yeah, these are attorneys um, representing companies. Yep. Right? And then we also talked to attorneys representing clients who are being, uh, having, needing the help of a defense attorney uh, against a payer like Medicare or CMS. And then we talked to billers and coders and we talked to people in the medical supply industry. Yep. So where do we start? Let's start, start with, um, a Q code for a reimbursable product. So if you haven't heard, there's products out there now that are um, saying that they have a Q code, which means that they're, uh, they're telling us that means it's covered by Medicare to bill that um, product or service, or that product in this case, uh, to Medicare for reimbursement. So for example, a Q code for a um, regenerative medicine product would mean that you could submit a, not I don't want to say the word stem cell, but a regenerative medicine product like a human cellular tissue product to Medicare and get reimbursement for it. So that's what we're talking about now. Is yep. that legitimate and does it work? Yes, and, and that's, that is what appears to be the claim uh, from some companies. And we were excited to look into this because we want regenerative medicine to be available to more people, uh, but we need to make sure that the three rules are always followed, Mike. Right, and the three rules are, is it good for the patient? Is it compliant? Mm -hmm. And then, is it profitable? So we're gonna look at it from that point of view and we'll share with you what we came up with. And again, I just want to reiterate, we are hoping that, yes, this is a uh, covered service because it would be good for everybody if it is. Yeah, and I think the, the, the place we probably started, we should start, Mike, would be, what does it mean to have a Q code? Uh, before I started this research, I didn't necessarily know the process. Uh, so therefore, the, the fact that there was a Q code, I didn't necessarily know what that meant. Um, so uh, one of the first things we found out, uh, not only from one of the attorneys, but also from the, the supply person who has been in business where uh, he has had to apply for product Q, uh, Q codes or other codes before, mm -hmm. is that there, he showed me the form. It's a three-page form that a supplier submits. It takes about five minutes to fill out, mm -hmm. okay? And what happens is, is the, the information goes from the manufacturer of the product. It goes into CMS in this case, and CMS is, is depending on the data from the manufacturer being accurate, okay, because uh, they, they are only looking at the data provided. Right. And one of the things that we saw from, uh, in fact, we have several of them here, we actually got copies of some of the responses from CMS in regard to regenerative medicine products. We're not going to talk company names, but these are publicly available. Right. So we want to point out that there's a couple layers to this, and it could get confusing, and some, of, some people have been confused by this. Establishing medical necessity is completely separate and different 
than actually having proper approval as a uh, reimbursable code. So there's a couple layers to this. Um, there's been some attorneys that have claimed, oh, we have proof that they're paying it because we won this case, and the case was based on medical necessity. I just want to point out that you can win a case on medical necessity and still have that same insurance company, if it's Medicare, which is an insurance agency, turn around and fine you for improper coding or improper uh, approval, even though you won the medical necessity case. So let's not confuse those two things. So we're talking pretty much approval of uh, a code for reimbursement. That's right. And I think that's a, that's a very good point, Mike. Um, we all know, or hopefully we all know, that the fact that a payer, such as Medicare or any other uh, third-party payer, the fact that they pay a claim is not uh, uh, evidence of coverage. It's simply evidence that they paid. Uh, remember that uh, insurance companies have timely filing rules. So, not timely filing, that's the provider, but uh, timely payment rules. And if they don't pay on time, there's penalties. And so often what will happen is uh, codes will get paid even if they are not statutorily covered, meaning legally they're not covered. They may get paid, uh, but then in the future, uh, that, that claim, if it was improperly paid, is subject to a clawback, meaning the payer can come back upon uh, a rack audit and take that money back. And so the first thing is we know that proof of uh, when a claim is paid doesn't mean it's necessarily covered. Right. Then the second thing, as you were bringing up, Mike, is okay, if a product has, a, in this case, a Q code, well, what does that mean? Does it mean there's coverage? And what we discovered is, no, it doesn't mean that there's coverage. Correct. Necessarily, it could be coverage, right. but it doesn't mean there's coverage. <clears throat> there's steps you have to go through. And what yeah. Eric's talking about is the adjudication rate, which insurance companies are subject to. And you might say, well, Medicare is excluded from that because they don't fall under ERISA. That's true, but Medicare also isn't a company trying to make a profit. They're using taxpayer dollars. So they have no problem historically paying out for a claim and then discovering three years later, oh, it wasn't properly approved, so we want all that money back. Yeah, and, and that's the, you know, um, that, that is part of the potential liability, right? So you want to make sure that uh, if a product has a Q code, okay, that's it. that basically is a code to identify the product. Now you as the provider and potentially a third-party payer can communicate because there's language, meaning the code is like a language to communicate with, but there's a step beyond getting a code, um, which would be, is something actually covered? Uh, the terms uh, that, that many of the attorneys use was statutorily covered when it came to Medicare. The, the question was, is this product covered? Yes, it has a Q code, potentially, mm -hmm. but is it covered? Well, there's, there's several things that go into determining that. Yep. Um, and I think that uh, probably at that point we start going into... Yeah, let's go into the process because yeah. um, you have to actually understand, you know, is it covered? And, and it could be covered in this case, if it's regenerative medicine, we found out there's two categories that they're going to try to get it covered in. One would be as a drug or biologic, and one would be as a uh, supply. So let's talk about the drug or biologic first. Sure. Yeah. So one of the first things that uh, Mike and I got familiar with when we started to go down this road was this, it's a legal term, meaning um, objective intent. Uh, and of course, there's a legal definition to it, but what made sense to me would be objective intent would be, you know, if, if you had a seven-year-old look at a particular situation, let's say like a procedure, what would that seven-year-old tell you was going on? Um, that is objective intent. That would be a, a way to consider objective intent. You know, just looking at the situation, what's actually happening? So when you consider objective intent, one of the first things that you look at is 
um, what is, uh, from the manufacturer's standpoint, the product must align to CMS, right? And so that's where you get to the, the issue of a Q code with these products we're discussing. So um, when we looked at some of the responses for, we, had, we looked at three of them actually, mm -hmm. different companies, different products. What we noticed is that one of the products uh, that was approved and got a Q code, everything that uh, was, was given to CMS regarding that product was consistent with a skin substitute, mm -hmm. right? And you look at that, the data they provide it, it is a skin, skin substitute, meaning it's something that goes on the outside as a barrier, yep. right? And then you see in the CMS decision, they specifically say it's for topical use only. And it, it is, they're approving it and they give it a Q4 code, meaning it's Q4 something, something, something. Right, so a Q4, what we learned was when it says Q4, four means for a skin substitute, mm -hmm. yep. not for anything else. Exactly. Then we look at, we look at the next uh, uh, response from CMS, and this is another company. In this company's application, they speak of a single product, they give some of the product's attributes, and then what they do is they, they make um, a, a claim of use. Claim may not be the right legal term, but they, they, they state a use, which is clearly skin substitute, and then they also talk about injecting, injecting the product. And then as we look at the CMS decision, the CMS decision issues a Q code for the product. They state that it is for topical use only. And then they also say this, they say after review of FDA's guidance, it does not appear to CMS that the non-topical uses, such as injection for cartilage repair, that are also the subject of this application are appropriate for regulation solely under 361 of the Public Health Care Service Act. Um, the skin substitute falls under 361. If you remember, there's the 351 and 361. Mm -hmm. 351 is a drug or biologic. 361 is uh, where skin substitute falls. And so they're, what they're saying here is that, yes, you made you, you made a, a statement of two different uses. They're applying, they're giving, uh, granting the Q code for the 361 use, which in this case is the specifically topical use only on the skin, so skin substitute, but they are specifically stating that injection does not fall under that usage. Right, so that would mean that it's probably, they're treating it more as a drug or biologic. So what the F CMS says is, um, if you have a drug or biologic, it has to be listed in the pharmacopoeia, which means that would be approved by the FDA, um, and probably go through that 351 process. At current, there are no, of, no products that are regenerative medicine products that are in that standing of a drug or biologic. So the only way to possibly get this covered then would be as a supply. And they're saying the supply is listed as a skin substitute. All the ones we've seen, they replied and got Q4 codes, which says it is a skin substitute. And CMS plainly spells out here that if you inject it into a joint, that is not using it as a skin substitute, which would ultimately result in CMS asking for that money back and then penalties. Yep. And so one of the things that we found was interesting as we went through this is that this whole 361, 351 um, uh, differentiation was something that the, was only uh, uh, 
delineated in, in about 2017, I believe that's the correct year. And so there are several companies in the regenerative medicine space that actually applied for their Q codes prior to the 351-361 designations and delineation. And so what that means is um, we don't have any of the responses that those companies uh, got on their Q codes here in front of me, um, but it is possible that since uh, the FDA hadn't sorted that out yet, or it may not be the FDA, it might be the Health, Health and Human Services, but whatever governmental organization did that 361, 351, mm -hmm. because that hadn't happened yet, the responses on the Q code applications may not be this specific. And so some of those companies that have their Q codes from earlier than that, than that date, right. it may be a little bit more ambiguous. And this is just something that we have to deal with with an emerging technology um, but we have to be smart about this and we have to go, what, are the, what is the potential liability? Right. I, even if this is a little bit of a gray area. Yeah, so the potential liability, I'll talk, touch on that for a second. Uh, CMS historically has applied, if you get money from the federal government, even if you do it totally honestly and you, you make a mistake and you don't, you don't think you're, you think you're supposed to get paid and you get paid, then you find out later you shouldn't have got paid. You have to return that money um, to the government. And if you don't do it within 60 days, they can apply double or treble damages, meaning that they would double or triple the amount of money you got paid, and that's how much money you would have to pay back. That is not the penalty. The penalty is tw up to $20,000 per claim that you submit, which could be applied on top of that. So it could very well be that you could have to pay back anywhere from two to six times the amount you were paid if they asked for this money back. We don't have a definite answer based on what we told you so far. We're going, okay, some of these earlier claims might not be clear and it might be vague, but then the question is, is CMS going to apply the rules that they're using now on these later applications on those earlier? And I, I got to tell you, CMS has done stuff like that in the past. So you're asking them to be kind, and we just want you to know the potential pos or liability out there for you as a clinician could be tremendous, but that's not everything. So we'll continue. That's right. So. Um, we'll refer back to the board here. When we talk about objective intent, the first thing is it's got the, what the manufacturer provides to CMS, which is what we were discussing here on these forms, um, it has to match. And, and, you'll, and from what we've seen, every one of these we reviewed, uh, they are talking about skin substitute and they are being given a code set, which is Q4 something, 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 which is, a skin sub, which is where the skin substitutes are. And if we go back to objective intent, it is clear that if you are injecting this product into a joint, there is no skin inside the joint. So we go back to, uh, you know, what does the seven-year-old say about this? You know, they're not going to say something was put on the skin like a Band-Aid. They're going to say something was injected into the body. Right. Right. And so, of course, that's sounding more like a drug or a biologic potentially. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. So the objective intent must align with CMS in the application and the, and the code that's granted. But then secondly, it must align to the FDA. And there's two places where this goes when it comes to the FDA. The FDA is going to decide, well, this is a drug or biologic in which case, statutorily, for Medicare from what we've been instructed uh, by several attorneys, a drug or biologic in order for it to be covered by Medicare, um, must be FDA approved. Yes. Right? It must also appear in one of several pharmacopias. Okay? Um, but we know at this point in time that there are, 
are, to our knowledge, there are no regenerative medicine products that are FDA approved. Right. This is the, uh, the IND process mm -hmm. that, you, that has been around the industry. There are several of the bigger companies that are submitting INDs to go through this drug process. Yep. But they have to get all the way through and get approval if these products are deemed a drug or biologic. And again, remember, that's the 351 designation. Right. Right. So the other thing that the FDA could determine would be that these things are not drug or biologics and that they are, are um, like a supply. Yes. Okay. And um, we know that one way that, that, that some attorneys are looking at this is that they are saying that um, some of these Q-code products are what are called supply incident to or a supply incident to the procedure. Right. Right. Now, the first question I had about that, just as, as a layperson listening to the language or, uh, you know, or a provider listening to the language going, you know, objective intent, um, it appears to me that if you're injecting a regenerative medicine product, it is hard for me to understand how that is a supply incident to the procedure when that is the actual procedure. That, that right. Well, it's probably similar to hyaluronic acid, which wasn't a Q code. It was a J code. Mm -hmm. And uh, CMS was covering that for knees only because that's what the approval was for. So that's one of the things that raised red flags with me is that, you know, people were saying a Q code and it can be covered anywhere in the body. Um, if you're using a supply, is, is hyaluronic acid considered a supply? I don't know. It's a J code, not a Q code. So, um, you know, you're walking into territory that's very, I don't even want to say gray. It's like, not a good, not a good territory. Not a territory that I would feel comfortable in. So yes. it's very, very ambiguous. Yes, and so you know, um, I, I think if we look at what has been set up for these companies, um, you probably, if you've been around us long enough, you've heard these companies talk about 351, 361, and you hear these companies talking about the fact that there's a deadline. Remember, the initial deadline for applications for 351 products, which was originally November of 2020, it would, it would be next month. Mm -hmm. And then because of COVID, uh, I believe, they pushed it to May, May of 2021. Yep. Now, if the FDA was looking at these types of products, and we're talking about injectables, we, we already know that skin substitutes are not considered drugs and biologics. They fall under grass, which is uh, generally regarded as safe. Uh, that's how a lot of nutritional supplements are not FDA approved, many other uh, food additives and things like that, mm -hmm. right? They fall under grass. Well, topicals uh, and, and skin barriers fall under that. So they, ought, they issue the Q code and there is, they are considered a supply. They are not considered a drug or biologic from what we've been instructed by several sources. But as soon as you start to inject, you know, that appears to be why um, the the uh, government has set up this IND pathway. The right. IND pathway is for a drug or biologic, and these companies are, 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 sub, are submitting their product applications for that. Right. So it's not saying they wouldn't, um, it's not saying it's illegal to do that, it's just saying that they're not gonna reimburse it unless they go through that pathway. Right, exactly. Right. That's right. Okay, so the objective intent must align with CMS and the FDA and you've got to decide that drug or biologic, or is it a supply? Um, I, everything I see, it, it, it just, from objective intent, when you're injecting these things into the joint, I can't imagine how it's not a drug or biologic. Right. That seems to be the most logical conclusion if, we, if we're not trying to play games. For objective intent, yeah. Yes. So then, objective intent also goes down to 
what does the patient believe um, is occurring here, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, the way that we talk to our patients about regenerative medicine products, they believe that product is being injected to restore tissue. Tissue, right? That's what they believe, yeah. It's definitely not a skin substitute barrier. And you can better believe that um, Medicare and CMS, if they do start looking and auditing people for this, they're going to be calling up patients and asking them, well, why did you get that? What did they tell you it was going to do? What were you getting it for? And if they say, because I needed skin substitute in my knee, that's not going to happen. No, they're going to say, because I, I wanted to heal the degeneration in my joint. That's right. Right? So that is an issue, right? And then that comes down as well is what does the provider intend? And it's the same question. As a provider, my intent is to actually heal the joint, reduce inflammation, and then we get into, okay, well, it's starting to sound like something more like a steroid or, That's right. right? Where yeah. we're looking for that metabolic effect on the knee. Yeah, and so all the paths that we look at are not showing a very clear path for reimbursement and for feeling comfortable with reimbursement. Um, and then there's another issue that comes up because we hear a lot of people telling us about, well, uh, it's legal to do, but they're giving me rebates um, because when you submit this, you have to submit the amount of money you paid for this product. And the more expensive it is, usually the higher the reimbursement. And there's this issue of, well, if a, the company gives you a rebate after you submit that, is that actually legal? Um, meaning that you would submit a higher rate and then get a reimbursement or rebate, which would lower your cost and your payment is based upon the higher number. Mm -hmm. So we found out some information about that as well. Exactly. So once, if you are able to check off this first box, you then, as Mike said, comes, come down to pricing, uh, and that's where the rebate issue comes in, right? So um, the first thing that, uh, you know, as Mike and I dug through all of this is, we learned, is that rebates are legal if done in a certain manner. Because yep. you will see, sometimes if you go into a pharmacy, you'll see that there's rebates for stuff, right? It is part of medicine, so it's not like rebates are illegal. They do have to be done properly. Right. Um, and we spoke to several different people uh, who had different opinions about the nuances of exactly how it could be done properly. But I think the most clear thing I saw that, that was concerning for me is that the first thing in terms of our understanding of the law is that in writing, right, the, the, the um, supplier must put in writing for uh, the, the supplier at the time of sale, um, the fact that the rebates must be, the, the actual price must be disclosed to the payer, if we're talking Medicare in this case, right, mm -hmm. Medicare. And, you know, um, one of the, the ways that we knew a doctor was, uh, was doing this is that they would get a, a product at a certain um, price and then they would get a rebate based on volume. Mm -hmm. And of course, what they were doing is they were submitting the initial invoice price, and then at the end of the month when they got their rebate, they are pocketing the difference as part of their profit. Right. Right? And um, from many sources, what, what it appears to be is the purpose of the rebate is not to create profit for the physician. A physician's profit is meant to be made from um, their time, as well as their technical expertise. And there's coding for that. Um, but the supply cost, which is being borne by the, um, by, by the, by the payer in this case, um, it, that, that, that rebate is supposed to be passed along to the 
the end, the end payer, which in this case could be Medicare, could be a third-party payer. Right. And so the question comes up, well, well, I don't know if I'm going to get a rebate until I know how many of these I bought. And that is true. I actually set that trying to play devil's advocate. And in this case, the, the consultant we were talking to said, yes, that's true, but that's why you don't have to submit your claims uh, you know, for a period of time. You could wait in the case of a, a, you know, a, a once-a-month rebate on volume. You could wait to submit that claim to find out whether you're getting the rebate or not. Right. And in that case, what you're supposed to do is provide the actual cost of that product to you, meaning the price after rebate, right. and potentially maybe less relevant to many of our doctors, any other value received from that uh, supplier. Right. Now, we're not trying to just create a problem here. This is how you will be looked at as far as we've been advised if you ever get looked at by this, these companies or these agencies paying this bill. Yep. Um, okay. So two points here. The, the manufacturer must provide in writing instructions to the, the uh, healthcare provider, letting them know that the, 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 the bottom line price, the net price is supposed to be disclosed on that uh, form. We've been instructed that is the case. And then also it is at the time of billing, the physician or healthcare provider is supposed to provide the net price to the payer. Um, so, okay, if we are able to check that box, we then come down to the last box here, which, was, which is compliance. And when you start to deal with third-party payers, um, you, you now are subject to things like the Sunshine Act. Uh, the Sunshine Act, in short, is meant to ensure that uh, all monies received by healthcare providers uh, are disclosed, um, and those could be um, you know, paid lunches, potentially, uh, they could be, um, uh, you know, support products that could be given as a, as a, uh, that are needed for, uh, you know, what the physician does in his or her office. All those things need to be disclosed so that the public and any other payers can evaluate these things and understand if there's been any sort of inducement. And when I say inducement, we're talking about between supplier and uh, physician, because what the government's worried about there is they want to make sure the physician is making decisions to buy product based on the best product available and what the patient really needs, as opposed to any sort of kickback they're getting. And then you have on the other side, make, if you're dealing with third-party payers, making sure that um, there's no inducement to the patient to utilize third-party paid services right. by, you know, in, in terms of any kickback. So there's two sides to that. You got to remember that when you're dealing with CMS or Medicare or any federal reimbursed um, agency, they're not looking at it as if the doctor's being a good business person. They're looking at it as if the doctor is spending taxpayers' dollars. Yes. And if you're spending taxpayer dollars in a way that you become more profitable and CMS pays a higher bill, they're looking that at that as not a very good thing for you as a citizen of the United States. So you have to keep that in mind. Yep, and I've seen statistics, and, and I may not have it exact, but I have it approximate, in that every dollar spent in recoupment results in $20 recouped. And so there, these things are farmed out to third-party companies uh, who simply are working on commission. Right. And uh, you know, if you had a, a resource where you could invest a dollar and get 20 back, you'd do it all day long. 
Not only that is the financial benefit there for both the payer and the third party recruitment company, but also um, that that person becomes a hero in the eyes of the taxpayer and the government. That's right. Many, um, a lot of times the collection of these things falls under the uh, uh, auspices of the DOJ. And there's been a lot of DOJs who have made their career based on press releases of how many dollars they recruit from corrupt doctors who are abusing the system. And I wouldn't want to find myself in that category. So, you know, we're, we recognize that what we're telling some people who are watching this might not be very, very palatable, uh, that you might be well invested in this. But I'm just going to back up a little bit, and I want to just look at one thing. In AMI, we've always tried to apply the three rules. And the three rules are, is it good for the patient, is it compliant, and is it profitable? And if it meets those three in that order, then it's a good service. Well, if you compare these products to other products, I'm just going to ask you as the viewer, if you have a product, these products usually come at room temperature. Some of them have to actually be mixed with saline solution. So ask yourself, is that product going to be as good and potent and viable as a product that comes to you frozen at minus 65 or minus 135 degrees Celsius in a cryo tank. Just ask yourself, which one's going to be better for the patient? Which is a higher quality product? These products in their description state they contain no viable MSCs. So you got to ask yourself, is this good for the patient compared to what you could be giving the patient? That's number one. Number two, is it compliant? We're pointing out here, we're not saying, well, it's gray area. We're saying this looks like it goes down a dead end road that's not a good road to be on. It's possible that somebody might pull something out and say, look, we've been approved by Medicare to do this for blah, blah, blah. But right now, we have not found evidence of that. And then number three, is it profitable? What we find is that the people that are getting paid from this, if you're following the, uh, the rebate laws, you're going to be getting paid less for this than you would be selling a product cash. Remember, Brandon Dawson was selling hearing aids that were not covered by insurance and competing against insurance-covered hearing aids, and he outsold them all day long based on value. And I know that you can do this. If you're watching this video, you've already done that. There's no reason why you have to do this if you feel like this is not a safe path to go, and that's frankly how I feel about it. So we're going to continue to do uh, selling regenerative medicine for cash, and if anything changes in the future, we'll let you know. But Right now, this is not a path that I can endorse or AMI can endorse as a safe, compliant pathway. Yeah, and I think it's worth revisiting the fact that, um, you know, if, if, a, if a company is providing advice that, that doesn't turn out to be correct, uh, let's assume that everybody is doing what they think is right. Because I believe everyone we spoke to uh, thought they uh, yeah. were, were saying the right thing, yeah. okay? Um, what happens is if, if you have followed that advice and three or five years down the road, Medicare or another third party payer comes back and decides that the billing was not correct, the product was, is in, in Medicare's case, maybe not statutorily covered because and it's not FDA approved. Based on approval, not on medical necessity. Yes, not medical necessity, it doesn't matter. The, the patient could need it all day long, but if it's not a statutorily approved product, then it's not covered. That is, everybody agreed with that. Nobody, none of the attorneys disagreed with that statement. Mm -hmm. They just disagreed on whether or not it had to be FDA approved, right? Yeah. Or was it a supply? But, so that is clear. What happens is um, we know that with this, dead, this deadline approaching November, uh, no, I'm sorry, um, was it April? May. Uh, May. May of 2021, 
uh, the, the, some of the smaller companies who have not gone down this IND pathway to get their product um, uh, a 351 designation are going to disappear because companies were given uh, a number of years to get everything in order, but those who don't get things in order are, are going to go out of business or they're just going to do skin substitutes and not injectables. So if a company gets to that point and then goes out of business and the sales reps and the representatives of the company go off and they are now representing other companies or have other jobs, um, the corporate entity is, is, is gone. Those individuals uh, most likely are not going to be on the hook. The person who's on the hook at that point is the provider. That's right. Right, Because you can't shake that with, with Medicare. Um, you, you are responsible for that, uh, just as responsible as the, the, the corporate entity that provided the product that was, in that case, improperly billed. And so you just have to be real certain when you make these decisions. And Mike, we are, are, we're very hopeful to find an, an avenue to get this pro type of product to more people, but we are most concerned with your future. We want to make sure that your future is secure. Yeah, if we find a product that actually passes this whole test and yeah. we feel like it's compliant, we're, we're all about it. Now, again, we would also put it in line with which is more viable, which is a, a more um, a, a higher quality product for your patient, and we would sell it that way. Um, you know, if somebody, I would say to somebody, this one over here is covered, but this one is not. This one is a higher quality, if I f truly believe that, and I would sell that. And if the people couldn't do it and they had to pay for, or use this one that was covered, that's great. But right now, we haven't ha found that product. We could be wrong, but we've done some due diligence and dug deep, and we have not found any pathways that endorse uh, CMS paying this and not asking for it back three years down the road. That's right. So, you know, to, 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 to look at the, like, what do we, so what do we do? So there may be several of you who have, especially after the difficulty of earlier this year uh, with the pandemic, right, may have moved in this direction thinking that, it, okay, this is going to solve a problem. So, you know, we want to make sure that we're not just giving you a problem. Uh, uh, if this turns out to be, the data we have turns out to be correct, uh, and, and CMS decides to come back and take this money, you're going to be glad that you didn't go down this path. But I understand in the moment that um, you're looking for solutions. Mike and I and Colleen and the rest of the team at AMI, we are working diligently to find new avenues, right, to be able to expand your cash uh, uh, regenerative medicine sales. In fact, you're doing a pilot right now we in are. your practice, we, which is very, very promising. Very promising. It's opening up doors for us and getting us into places and we're going to be releasing that very soon. Yeah, and you're getting right into companies, which yep. is where you're going to find qualified um, candidates who need the service. That's right. That's right? correct. Um, so, you know, the future is bright. We just want to make sure at this moment in time, where, you know, there's a, there's, for many of us, there's a, there's a little more stress with the business or on the finances because we're coming out of a difficult time. We just need to make sure that we don't make decisions now that, that cause us problems down the road that potentially become insurmountable or extremely damaging. So um, we're here for you. We're working hard to make sure that um, we can continue to provide you with the help you need to expand, and we're excited about the future. Yes, so thanks for listening, and um, you know, let's, let's continue to change healthcare.